0: The Renewing Nature. The appeal of environmentalism is that it transfers sin from the person to the world around him. As a result, it is usually easy to gain a following among troubled people by blaming their problems, not on their sins, but on their environment. This is the essence of socialism in all its forms. The evil capitalists are charged with all the sins of society, and people are presented as innocent victims of this evil, plotting minority. Humanistic conservatism is no different. It holds that an evil conspiracy has misled the people and brought all the evils upon us, of ages past and of times present, in terms of a grand design of power. Clearly, evil capitalists do exist, just as clearly evil conspiracies exist. All the same, the responsibility for our ills rests with ourselves and our sins. This is clearly and emphatically the biblical position. In an especially telling passage, our Lord declared that the line of division between the Pharisees and himself was in part this fact, that the source of defilement was declared by him to be in the heart of man. According to Matthew fifteen ten through 20 And he called the multitude, and said unto them, Hear and understand, Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth the man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth the man. Then came his disciples, and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered, and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter, and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly, and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. To accept this is to declare that we are sinners, and that we sin not because we are misled or misinformed, but because we choose willfully to disobey God. The source of corruption or destruction in our lives and in our world is our own hearts, and only as we have a new heart in Christ Jesus do we replace that will to destruction with everlasting life. The sinner or reprobate, however, not only insists that the root of corruption is outside himself, but he also places the blame on whatever class of people he finds himself in opposition to. Thus, many believe in corruption from above, by kings, lords, capitalists, or a ruling class in some form. This faith can also hold that this corruption from above is a ruling race or nation, the white race, the American, German, English, French, Spanish, or Jewish peoples. These corruptors from above are held to be the source of tyranny, oppression, seduction, robbery, and theft. On the other hand, others believe that corruption is from below, from workers, slaves, maids, and men servants. These people with lower standards are held to be the persistent destroyers of peoples and cultures, being concerned only with their belly and pleasures. Clearly, there are elements of half truth on both sides. Anyone who looks for sin in man is bound to succeed. Capitalists have often mistreated and robbed good employees. But employees have just as often robbed and abused good employers. Many a maid or slave girl in history has been seduced or raped by a master or owner, and it would be needless to document this fact. But equally true, many a maid and slave girl has worked earnestly to seduce a master or a master's son, so that the disappearance of slavery and the decline of household servants eliminated a common source of corruption in family life. Sin knows no class or race barriers. Sin is not segregated to a particular class or race, it is native to the heart of all fallen men, and its source is the heart of man. The biblical position thus is that corruption or destruction is from within. The old saying is true, we have met the enemy, and they are us. Solomon therefore declared, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 Delich's translation and comment are to the point. Above all other things that are to be guarded, keep thy heart, for out from it life has its issues. The scripture names the heart as the intellectual soul center of man and its concrete central unity, its dynamic activity, and its ethical determination on all sides. All the radiations of corporeal and of soul life concentrate there, and again unfold themselves from thence. The heart is the instrument of the thinking, willing, perceiving life of the spirit. It is the seat of knowledge of self, of the knowledge of God, of the knowledge of our relation to God, and also of the law of God impressed on our moral nature. It is the workshop of our individual spiritual and ethical form of life brought about by self-activity. The life in its higher and in its lower sense goes out from it and receives from it the impulse of the direction which it takes. And how earnestly, therefore, must we feel ourselves admonished, How sacredly bound to preserve the heart in purity. Psalm seventy-three one, So that from this spring of life may go forth not mere seeming life and a caricature of life, but a true life, well-pleasing to God. Fritch has commented on this verse that, After the heart is right with God, good conduct flows from its hidden springs. Cross-reference Matthew 15.19 The heart of man is thus the source of corruption or destruction and when regenerated by the grace of God through Christ the wellspring of reconstruction in earlier days this principle was the source of progress in america to illustrate this fact let us turn to the sermon delivered on the evening of october 20th 1824 in the tabernacle church salem by elias cornelius before the salem society for the moral and religious instruction of the poor the society had been organized 6 years earlier cornelius's text was leviticus 25:35 And if thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him, yes, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. The time of the Sermon is significant. Immigration was bringing greater numbers of people to the United States. The Salem Society was one of a great many formed to deal with the problems created by this influx. It was ascertained that there were several hundred families of poor people in the town unconnected with any religious society, and of course unaccustomed to the proper observance of the Sabbath and the duties of public worship, whose children in most cases were growing up in ignorance and vice. And it was conceived that unless some effectual measures were taken to check the evil, the worst consequences might ensue not only to the poor, but to the town. The experience of each succeeding year has shown the correctness of this opinion and induced the friends of the society to proceed in their object with increasing energy Elias Cornelius 1794 to 1832 was a congregational minister who served not only as collegiate pastor at Salem but earlier as an agent of the American board of commissioners for foreign missions he visited creek cherokee and other missions during his time of office from 1826 to 1831 he was secretary of the American Education Society. Since Salem in the census of 1840, 16 years later, had a population of 15,083, for several hundred families to be poor and delinquent in 1824 meant a real social problem. Cornelius, by his text, made clear that it was the duty of Christians to do something, but before doing anything, he made it clear that the nature of the problem had to be understood. It is a religious duty, he held, to relieve those in distress or need. The psalmist had declared, Blessed is he who considereth the poor. Psalm forty-one, one. And Cornelius cited also the Proverbs, Whoso stoppeth his ear at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Proverbs 21.13 And he that giveth to the poor shall not lack, but he that hideth his eyes shall have many a curse. Proverbs 28.27 Cornelius also cited 1 John 3.17, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him. As a result, he concluded, In regard to the duty of relieving the poor, there can therefore be but one opinion. No man who cherishes the spirit of the Bible or believes its precepts to be binding can deny it. The only question which can be asked is, how the wants of the poor can be most effectually relieved. The concern of Cornelius and his fellow Christians was not merely to give the poor alms or a handout, but how best to relieve their condition. Accordingly, he declared, the proposition I shall endeavor to establish is that the moral and religious improvement of the poor is the surest and best means of relieving their wants. Three objectives should be in mind, first to relieve the temporal wants of the poor, second to seek their elevation in society, and third, their eternal happiness. These ends, he held, can only be truly furthered by promoting the moral and religious improvement of the poor. First, the moral and religious improvement of the poor is the best means of relieving their temporal wants. I do not mean that a moral and religious influence exerted upon their minds can satisfy the cravings of hunger or cover the limbs that are shivering with the cold or remove the distresses of sickness but that, so far as these evils are the effect of moral causes, it is the most powerful and the only sure antidote against them. A thorough examination of the causes of what is called pauperism will convince anyone that in 9 instances out of 10, if not in 99 out of a 100, they are traced to vicious habits. Not that everyone who is poor and dependent on charity has come to this state by his own vices, although this is the fact in a great number of cases, But that to the full extent which has been mentioned, the poor have become so either by their own vices or the vices of others. You shall go to any poorhouse in the land, and examine minutely into the history of every pauper whom it contains, and I am willing to hazard the assertion that not one in ten will be found who was gone there in consequence of unavoidable misfortune. How many are there who have been reduced to poverty by idleness, by dissipation and prodigality, but especially by intemperance? Relief to the poor, which does not also administer relief to the cause of poverty, is futile. Certainly, material wants must be relieved, but nothing is solved, Cornelius held, unless the principal causes are dealt with. But the principal causes of poverty, as has been shown, are moral causes. These are to be removed only by moral influence, and that influence can be exerted in no way but by instilling into the mind moral and religious principles. In modern terminology, Cornelius held that the poor are present-oriented and lower-class. They can only improve their class status by means of a biblical faith. As a result, he held that, Secondly, the moral and religious improvement of the poor is the most direct and efficient means of elevating them in society and giving them that influence which belongs to them as intelligent and accountable beings. Vice, as we have seen, is a frequent companion of poverty. Ignorance is another. These combined produce a moral degradation which necessarily excludes those who are the subjects of it from influence, and even from respectability in society. Now here, as under the last head, if we would elevate the poor, we must remove the causes of their depression. If a man has lost his reputation by becoming vicious, the proper way for him to regain it is to become virtuous. And so if ignorance prevents him from having influence, the proper way to give him influence is to enlighten him. Thirdly, the moral and religious improvement of the poor is the only means by which their eternal happiness can be secured. The Salem Society worked towards these ends and helped get the children of the poor into common schools. It established six Sabbath schools for over 600 children of the poor. It provided a chapel for seamen in a convenient part of the town, and it employed Eliezer Brainerd as a missionary pastor in the community. Cornelius called attention to the social consequences of such Christian efforts. For what can be plainer, than that if you remove the causes of poverty, you lessen the taxes which are necessary for supporting it? Accordingly, it will be found, take the world through, that where there is most morality and religion, there are fewest of the evils of poverty. If anyone doubts this fact, let him compare New England with the more southern parts of the United States, or Scotland with England. I know, says Dr. Chalmers, a parish in Scotland, the average maintenance of whose poor is defrayed by 24 pounds sterling a year, and a parish of the same population in England, where the annual assessments amount to 1,300 pounds sterling. And what is the cause of this difference? It may not be the only cause, but no one will deny that it is chiefly owing to the superior moral and religious culture which the Scottish peasantry have received. Similar facts might be brought from other countries." and they speak volumes in praise of the design of the society which solicits your patronage this evening. At the time that Cornelius lived, the United States was facing potentially revolutionary changes. The great influx of immigrants was beginning. People were pouring into the country who had little or no knowledge of its faith or heritage. They were simply seeking escape from tyranny and poverty and a better life for themselves. The country clearly needed these people to help occupy a continent before Britain, Spain, and Russia took the West. On the other hand, these peoples could also change the country beyond all recognition. The reaction of some conservatives was political and repressive. Hostility towards foreigners led to the creation of various Native American movements and political bodies. These organizations fed on hatred for outsiders and stimulated it by highly emotional charges and claims. More than a little violence was unleashed against various immigrant groups. These organizations not only did not accomplish their purpose, but also did much damage to American life. The Orthodox Christian reaction was very different. A wide variety of societies were created to minister to the new problems. Sabbath schools for immigrant children and Christian day schools as well were created. English was taught to adults, missions were started, orphanages, relief societies, Bible societies. Societies to deal with various vices, these and hundreds of other organizations were established to cope with every kind of problem which arose. The future of America was shaped by this massive effort at Christian reconstruction. The Native American movement failed. The Christian reconstruction was so extensive that it became the real government of American society. A few years after Cornelius's death, Alexis de Tocqueville, in commenting on the impact of non-ecclesiastical societal Christianity on America, noted that authority in America was religious and that there is no country in the whole world in which the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. The Native American movements did much harm to American life. They were noisy in their claims that they represented real Americanism, but they were at best a neutralizing force to progress and Christianity. At their worst, they were anti-Christian and un-American in the name of Christ in America. By claiming to be the conservative force, which they were not, for they had no appreciation for their Puritan heritage, they brought discredit on that heritage. On the other hand, Orthodox Christians, by their zeal to bring every man under the renewing power of God, did more than anyone else to cope with the central problems of American life between 1800 and 1850. Timothy Dwight, 1752-1817, often pictured as a reactionary, was in this respect progressive, in that he saw the need was Christ and the reformation of all things in terms of biblical faith. For his famous and influential sermon on the true means of establishing public happiness, a sermon delivered on the 7th of July, 1795, before the Connecticut Society of Cincinnati, Dwight took as his text Isaiah 33.6, and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. This verse echoed the Puritan spirit and the reason for its progressive power and vitality. Dwight declared, Connecticut can never be distinguished for extensive territory, superior wealth, or great numbers of inhabitants. This, instead of being a misfortune, ought to be esteemed a blessing. A nobler distinction is thrown by a good providence into its hands. It may rise to preeminence in knowledge, virtue, and happiness. We need not grudge the dross while the gold is ours. It may be the Athens, not of a savage, idolatrous, and brutal world, but of a world enlightened, refined, and Christian. Let its citizens unite in well-concerted and determined efforts for this end, and it will be well accomplished. It is difficult for men today to realize how much such a goal appealed to men then and commanded their hearts and minds. Preeminence in knowledge, virtue, and happiness was in much of the country the American dream and goal. It was a Christian concern, and the key was seen in the renewing nature of the redeemed man who, having been redeemed in Christ, works then to order all things and reconstruct all things in conformity to God's law word and under his dominion. A very short time after the Reverend Elias Cornelius preached before the Salem Society, Alexis de Tocqueville visited America and wrote about its urban problems. In an important footnote, he saw the grim problem of the urban slums and their alien and criminal elements, declaring, the United States have no metropolis, but they already contain several very large cities. Philadelphia reckoned 161,000 inhabitants, and New York 202,000 in the year 1830. The lower orders which inhabit these cities constitute a rubble even more formidable than the populace of European towns. They consist of freed blacks in the first place, who were condemned by the laws and by public opinion to an hereditary state of misery and degradation. But they also contain a multitude of Europeans who have been driven to the shores of the New World by their misfortunes or their misconduct. And these men inoculate the United States with all our vices, without bringing with them any of those interests which counteract their baneful influence. As inhabitants of a country where they have no civil rights, they are ready to turn all the passions which agitate the community to their own advantage. Thus, within the last few months, serious riots have broken out in Philadelphia and in New York disturbances of this kind are unknown in the rest of the country, which is now wise alarmed by them, because the population of the cities has hitherto exercised neither power nor influence over the rural districts. Nevertheless, I look upon the size of certain American cities, and especially on the nature of their population, as a real danger which threatens the future security of the democratic republics of the new world, and I venture to predict that they will perish from this circumstance unless the government succeed in creating an armed force, which, while it remains under the control of the majority of the nation, will be independent of the town population and able to repress its excesses. Unwed pregnant girls were often disposed of in Europe by buying them a one-way ticket to America, for them there to seek their ostensible level, usually prostitution. Black sheep sons were also sent off to the United States, or ran off to it. Tocqueville felt that the United States would surely perish under this invasion unless the government succeed in creating an armed force independent of the town population and able to control it. Tocqueville was wrong, as were the Native American reactionary groups whose answer was also force. Christian orthodoxy met the challenge by evangelization and largely won the day. It was far from a total victory, but it was a very significant one. One further point on Tocqueville's blindness. Timothy Dwight's famous Connecticut sermon was preached in 1795. In 1830, Tocqueville noted, 36 of the members of Congress were born in the little state of Connecticut. He then added, The population of Connecticut, which constitutes only one-forty-third part of that of the United States, thus furnished one-eighth of the whole body of representatives. The state of Connecticut, however, only sends five delegates to Congress, and the 31 others sit for the new western states. If these 31 individuals had remained in Connecticut, it is probable that instead of becoming rich landowners, they would have remained humble laborers, that they would have lived in obscurity without being able to rise into public life, and that, far from becoming useful members of the legislature, they might have been unruly citizens. But it was not immigration that made the difference. The possibility of becoming unruly citizens was far greater in the newer states, The population of Connecticut carried with them in their migrations a faith and character which gave them eminence.